It's the 18th of August, 2015, and this is episode 239. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. So for the last year or so, I've been working on token-related projects, and it started with LTB Coin, and it became the company in November of 2014 called Tokenly that I founded along with Devin Weller and Nick Rathman, who had worked with me since we started LTB Coin. At the beginning of July, we rolled into our open alpha period, where we have the three core tools that make up the things that we're trying to do, the core components that you need in order to accomplish the stuff that we're trying to make it easier to accomplish. Stephanie, you said you wanted to talk about the Audible use case. So let's just start there. So looking at audible.com, Audible for anybody who isn't familiar with it, it's a service that is owned by Amazon that sells audiobooks and then also has a market on the back end that connects content creators, uh, people who write books with people who narrate books. And they basically all split it. The platform gets about 60% of the revenue that comes in from every book sold. And the author and the narrator split the other 40%. Yeah, I'm just laughing because you said they basically all split it. But a lot of people don't really think of that as super fair. A lot of these are like self-published authors and like narrators who some are professionals, some it's their full-time gig, others it's not. It's kind of a hobby they're trying to start out. And people have a wide variety of experiences on this platform. but. I've been uh, finding audiobooks to narrate through ACX, which is the back end of audible.com for a couple of years now. And uh, it's been interesting, but the thing that stands out is it's definitely in Amazon's favor. <laughs> you know, they've got this big platform and they can do whatever they want with it, essentially. So keeping 60% of the sale of the audiobooks and having they set the price, like the author and the narrator don't have any say over what the price of the audiobook is. There's a number of technical issues that can make it difficult to use their platform, but they're the biggest platform. (laughs) And it's as a result, it's flooded with authors who want to get their books turned into audiobooks. And it's flooded with narrators who want to get work. It's basically a monopolized platform. It's a platform where if you want to use the platform, then you follow the platform's rules. And because they're the biggest platform out there... Audible also really preferences people who give them exclusivity. So there's a really strong incentive, not only to release it with Audible, but also to release it just with Audible. And then let's just talk about how the pay actually gets determined because Audible uses a credit system, right? Yes. When you buy a book or when you sign up for Audible service, usually what you're doing is you're buying a fixed number of credits, either on a one-off basis. So you might get three credits or you might get two credits per month. And then you get the per month price, you know, you sign up for like a year or something like that. Yeah. And a credit is roughly like an audiobook. Right. Exactly. A credit is, and and it's important to note here that a credit is not just an audiobook, but a credit is almost all audiobooks. There are very few audiobooks, whether you're talking about something that's five hours long or that's 30 hours long, that costs more than one credit. And the reason why Audible can do this is because of that split. It's because it's not about, well, we get, we take $5 off of every transaction. No, it's we take 60% of every transaction. So whatever the sale price that they're able to get for it sort of doesn't matter to them. The platform just wants to make sure that people have stuff to spend the credits on. I'm sure the Justice Department is looking into these abuses of the copyright system in order to create a monopoly trust uh, market. And we'll be taking action anytime now, anytime. Just hold your breath. 
this is kind of where the interesting stuff with tokens comes in, because the reason why they're able to extract monopoly prices and the reason why they effectively have a monopoly on their platform is because anybody who wants to put books into the system has to do it with Audible. They have to make that process. That process is something that goes through Audible at literally every level. And then Audible owns, you know, they don't own the book, but they own all of the tokens and all of the credits and everything that's going through their system. When you buy an Audible book and you want to listen to it, you can't just download an MP3 because then you could make a copy of the MP3 and give it to other people. So they use a closed application environment type system. Yeah, just to add on to that, they're trying to get all the authors to basically market to people to turn them into Audible's customers. They give the authors and narrators an incentive to market their audiobook as, hey, download a free audiobook as part of a trial membership. And then they get the customer hooked as a monthly member and the author and narrator get a reward for that. But it's an affiliate reward for creating a customer for Audible. It's not your customer as the narrator or the author. It's Audible's customer. So they're sucking people into this, <laughs> this whole closed system. What you can do if you have tokens and take tokens and put them into the situation. So right now, when you buy a book with Audible in Audible's database, they'll make a mark next to your account name and say, this account name now owns, has a license to use, has the right to read and consume when logged in this particular book. There's no concept of actual ownership. And this is actually what tokens do in pretty much every situation you introduce them into is that when instead of tying ownership of something or access to something to a database entry, you tie it to possession of a specific token that grants that access because the tokens work at a higher level, or you could argue a lower level, then the platform, the platform actually has to compete now. So that's a lot of words. And basically what it means is this. When you trade in your credit to Audible and they give you the book, they are not actually giving you anything. They are giving your identity with their system in their system access to whatever the content is that they're supposed to be. You're supposed to get access to. It's licensing, not ownership. I mean, that's the bottom line. I get a time restricted device restricted license to listen to that book once or perhaps many times, but essentially listen to it on one device or a few devices that are approved by Audible. I can't transfer that. There's no element of ownership in a traditional sense. If I buy a book, I can, or even if I buy a cassette, I can lend it to a friend. I can donate it to a library. I can donate it to a school for charity. I can resell it. First sale doctrine is a key part of copyright law, right? So all of that goes away. And this has been a really strong trend in our culture is to completely eradicate ownership and instead convert everyone into a license holder for limited consumption under tight control. I would argue one of the reasons why this has happened specifically on the internet to the exclusion of any sort of ownership, like domain names, for example, are an incredibly onerous process to own and, and to transfer. And it's really, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that can go wrong. And the lack of any real ownership means that effectively, when you're transferring from one domain service provider to another, you are trying to have the one pick up the record at the same time as the other releases the record. Because if there's then no record, well, you're in trouble there too. So it's this like if there's a token that goes from one registrar to the other that simply represents that name, then there's never any question about who has it. And it's much the same here. So there's no concept of a used book in an Audible system. There's no concept of an independent bookstore in an Audible system. Like Stephanie said, the only thing you can really do is be an affiliate on their behalf and help them to get customers and then they pay you. 
So when you add a token into this, effectively, how it would work is this. A author has a book in audio book format that they're essentially ready to put onto the service. And on the service, they'll register the book, right? And they'll pay a registration fee. They'll say, this particular you know, MP3 file represents this particular book. This token grants access to it. And it's a token that they've issued themselves on top of Bitcoin. And again, that process is something that used to be hard. A year ago, if we were talking about this, it would have been you know, like pretty difficult. But now it's really trivially easy. So the author creates a token, takes it to the uh, service provider, which is effectively what the Audible platform or competitors would become. It says, I want to be able to have my people who want to read or consume this book, I want them to be able to do it through your platform. So I'm going to pay you a fee so that you'll list my content and serve it through your content distribution platform. And then I want you to give access to it to people who have this token in a Bitcoin address that is associated with their account. And then whenever somebody uses the application and signs in with an account that has an associated Bitcoin address that has that correct token, well, all of the tokens that are in that address that correspond with books or with you know readings or other things, that is the content that you have. And so because it's tied to specific tokens, it means that you can do all the things that you can do with things that you really own. It's not just a license. It's a license so long as you hold it, but the license is granted to the address that possesses it rather than to the particular identity that cannot and will never change. It's a bearer license. It's given to the one who bears it, just like a bearer bond, which is fully transferable and you can sell it, resell it, rent it, fleece it, whatever. But it still offers exclusivity of license to whoever has that token at that time. And the exclusivity of license is the really important part. What that means is that when I lend you a book, Andreas, I'm actually losing possession of it which is something that is different than if I was giving you an MP3, because I would just send you a copy and you know I would still have my copy. So when you don't have the ability to have those two things look different, right? when everything is just, oh, well, I'm giving you something and inherently it's a copy because that's how data works, then that creates these situations where you have these incentives toward all kinds of closed gardens because somebody is going to be in control of it. So it might as well be your company. But that's what tokens provide and specifically Bitcoin too. Everything is a bearer instrument in the Bitcoin system. If you have it, you really have it. Because if you didn't have it, then you wouldn't have it. It sounds weird, but it's pretty straightforward. And so because of that, it makes it really easy to do all these things that normally, like you couldn't trust somebody to have an independent store selling Audible books because all the math would have to work and you'd have to have all kinds of crazy accounting and you'd have to have a relationship with the Audible company at a very deep level in order to make that work in anything beyond the affiliate program that they provide now. But if you have tokens, well, then that's an entirely different situation. And it lends itself to different dynamics that are much closer to like a real bookstore than they are to, you know, these kind of Internet closed gardens that we've gotten used to. And speaking of the accounting, there's another opportunity for use of tokens here. And maybe we can talk about the splitter now. So as a narrator who works on Audible books, when I do a royalty share agreement with an author, Audible gets 60 percent of the sale price of the book, which they set, as we said before. And then the remaining 40% is split between me, the narrator, and the author of the book. But the problem with that is that it completely relies on Audible or Amazon to do the accounting, to send out the payments, and to try to send you this convoluted PDF saying, okay, well, this is how much you're getting paid because this is how many people bought the book. And they have different tiers of people buying the book because people pay different prices for it. So it's just a total mess. It takes them sometimes up to a month to process all these payments. 
And sometimes they don't even make their own deadlines for when they say that they're going to pay the narrators. It's like, you know, the next month you get paid for the previous month's sales. And they try to send you a list of like, well, who bought your book with a token with the, you know, Audible membership plan? Who bought it a la carte? Who bought it, who had a membership, but they purchased it in addition to their membership token? And so they try to like integrate all this stuff, but it's a nightmare to keep track of. And then they've got to split all these payments between the narrators and authors and themselves. The biggest thing about that is that you're trusting them, right? It's a system that requires trust. Sometimes it doesn't always inspire trust because you're like, well, what's going on here with this accounting? What do I do if I have a dispute? There's nothing you can do. With a token-based system, there's really the potential to do that in a much more fair way where the accounting could be a lot more public. The records could be actually on a blockchain so you could see them. It would be done automatically. Payments could be processed automatically. That system would just be so much more frictionless. I think that automation does a lot of that. A lot of the tools that I'm building with Tokenly, that we're building with Tokenly, are basically that. They're automation for things that you would do anyways. But there's an important distinction I want to put into what you said there. Ultimately, when you're working with Audible, every single thing that you sell and every single thing that you do goes through Audible. In the situations that we're talking about, Audible might choose to buy some of your book tokens at a wholesale price and to offer those in exchange on their platform and to sell them. But they also might not. So when you register something with Audible, you're registering them to do the content distribution for you so that you can say to your readers who you sell the book to or who the author sells the book to or who a blogger sells the book to or whomever. Like I said, it winds up looking a whole lot more like how things work in real life. So how it would work is like, imagine that you've written a book and you want to offer it for sale on your own website. You would get a vending machine that would sell your access token that gives you access to your book in whatever the application is. And another thing is that competition is something that comes into play here too. Audible doesn't compete with anybody because nobody can use Audible content on another platform. But when you're talking about tokens, that's not the case. If there are three different platforms offering content distribution for audiobooks, then why would I necessarily pick the one that you know is Audible over the other options? Or frankly, why would I pick any of them to the exclusion of the others? Because you could just pay the fee on all of them. What we're seeing here is a move in our arrangement of our life from institutions to platforms to protocols. And Audible is a platform, and platforms are better than institutions, but they still can create a lot of lock-in. And protocols solve that. And that's why moving from a platform to a protocol basically separates the layers and means that you can do things on the token layer that are independent from the content distribution layer, that are independent from the ownership layer, from the accounting layer, and all of the other layers, rather than doing it as a vertically integrated platform with one party having control over the whole thing and using each of those parts to lock everyone else. And we know where this goes. I mean, Stephanie described this um, kind of accounting system that she has to trust. But, you know, the ultimate uh, devolution of that is the accounting practices of Hollywood that have become scandalous in the last 10 or 15 years, where you have people who make an agreement with a studio like the screenwriters or the various participants in the early stages of the movie who take a percentage of net. And then Hollywood pulls these accounting bullshit tricks where they manage to make a movie that grosses a billion dollars appear as net unprofitable on paper so that they don't have to pay all the people who have a net profit cut. So that's the ultimate devolution of that, where you have these accounting gimmicks reach a stage where it's just downright theft, 
and they're, they're able effectively to use these gimmicks to defraud people who have agreements. The recording studios are doing it with music. Hollywood is doing it with movies. And, you know, give Audible 10 years to be nicely established and comfortable. And guess what they're going to do? I'm in a Facebook group for Audible narrators. And it's just constantly just people complaining about <laughs> the system of Audible. You know, and it's a great group because you can compare experiences with people. But every time they pay the narrators late or they're late in sending out their earnings statements, there's a bunch of, you know, just conspiracy talk about what's happening. Amazon's unprofitable. And yeah, actually, Amazon has not been running at a profit. As I understand it, they're taking a more long-term view of their company and so forth. But yeah, there's a lot of speculation about what happens every month. And it would just be so great if we didn't have to trust these people. They have fewer opportunities to exploit because they're platforms that is mostly digital. So they can't really create costs out of nothing. But, you know, give them some time. They're going to find some creative accounting rules. You know, you're going to be paying for the uh, hard drive defragmentation fee, the electron acceleration fee, the volume leveling service surcharge and tax. You're like, oh, wait, hang on a second. Where did all of my net profit go? Oh, dear. So the way that all this stuff works is basically cash on the barrel. And that's, again, an important difference between the systems that we have on the Internet now, where it's like you sell something and then you get paid at some point later because nobody knows if the payment is actually going to go through until 30 days later. So the way that this would work, we kind of have to invert the way that it works now. You have to think about it starting from the authors. So the authors and narrators would you know, use whatever market mechanisms they want to find each other and connect. And it might still be through a market run by Audible to create the content. And then at the point that the content is created, then essentially the creators who are going to sell it would set up a vending machine that would sell it. And you might sell one at a time, you know, one access token at a time for $10. And you might sell, you know, if you buy five at a time, then they're $5 each, something like that. And so by doing this, you create space for both types of users where you've got users who just, you know, are interested in the book and just want to get the book. So they buy one copy of the book, they pay a price that they're happy with. And they can now use it on whatever platforms you've registered it with. But similarly, somebody who runs a blog finding you know, good upcoming books or whatever can come along and say, hey, I can sell five of these, can buy you know, five from you for $5 each, and can then sell them to people on their blog through their own vending machine for $8 each. And so they make a $3 profit each, and they still are offering a savings to the people who are, are buying it from them relative to the retail price. That's kind of where this winds up going is that once you have a system like that, where there are two effective prices and their difference between them is how much quantity you have to buy. And there's something where supply and demand actually can take place, right? Where you actually can, you know, then resell a token and perhaps a specific token is less valuable after there are a lot of them sold and people have finished consuming the content and they don't want it anymore. So it creates a secondary market type of thing. Ownership makes it possible to do all of the things that you can do in real life with stuff, except it provides it in an environment that has all of the advantages of the internet, which is that you're completely connected or have the ability to be completely connected with just about anybody who you want to. So it offers kind of the best of both worlds in that circumstance. And the inconvenience factor is basically that you have to use a wallet. You have to like be willing to say, this is one of my accounts to somebody. Because again, one of the things that's important about this is that Audible or anybody else would build an application that would use tokens within its... Within its app, which you have to use anyway if you're using Audible. Right, right. But the difference is, is that you're building it so that it's one that looks to the outside of Audible, that looks above Audible, that says, oh, this is a token protocol 
And so therefore, you know, anybody, anyone who wants to register one of these tokens can pay us and we will provide that service. That's effectively what Audible becomes. And it's a much less profitable model. They're not making 60% because again, there's nothing stopping you from going to somebody else's platform that offers a closed application environment and does all of the same things, but doesn't do the thing that you find particularly irritating about Audible. Or again, you could just use them all because the cost on a per book basis probably won't be more than a couple hundred dollars. So they'd have to compete on the quality of their distribution network, on the speed of downloads, on the user interface of their reading applications or any other applications they support for buying, on the strength of their recommendations engine and editorial control engine and all of those things. Well, bring it on. I mean, that's, that's really what you're paying for and that's what you should be paying for, not for the monopoly access to highly restrictive content, which quite honestly, the authors don't want. And I say that as an author who has released a book under an open source creative commons license. You have these companies and they pretend that they're doing this for the benefit of the author. They're protecting the intellectual property of the author and, and their royalties. And, and for the most part, that's bullshit. Most authors are, are much more interested in in having people read their book, <laughs> in having people read their book, and and you don't achieve that with digital rights management and closed networks and high prices and and terrible licensing schemes. It's funny to pretend that it's stopping anyone too. I mean, books on Audible regularly get ripped and torrented. You know, they try to implement some feature to protect the IP, so called. People figure out ways to get around it. Listen, you need this incredible level of technology, obviously, to intervene with their digital rights management. I mean, you need all three things, a a speaker, a microphone, and a cassette recorder. And, you know, quite honestly, that will cost you at least $15 at Radio Shack, and then you can rip every single one of their titles in a few seconds. Or you can maybe write software that cracks their DRM, which is also trivially easy to do, and just do it en masse. I mean, who are we kidding? This is the predominant model of our era, punishing the innocent, legitimate paying customers in order to protect against some phantom of piracy or privacy or terrorism or whatever, and then making the innocent pay for it. And the reason is simple. It gives these companies enormous control and allows them to extract rent-seeking profits by avoiding competition. I think the idea of changing the game by disrupting the foundational aspects of licensing and content is fantastic. So more power to you, Adam. The important takeaway here is that this is not limited at all to book platforms or Audible as a company. It's just a convenient example because they have some particularly egregious. For me, a lot of this is about trying to present possibilities that don't really exist right now. And so another thing that I've thought about quite extensively is the same model applied to daily comic strips, right? Things that people used to read in the newspaper, but as newspapers have become more scarce, the number of comics that are still being put out is basically the same. And it's a very, very select number. And so people say, oh, well, you should do web comics, but a lot of traditional comic, you know, daily comic writers don't really want to do that because it's hard to monetize and you have to do it all based around merchandising and stuff like that, as opposed to just the work. So you could take the same concept and apply it to that. Instead of it being, oh, well, I'm listening to my audiobooks, it's, oh, well, I have my you know, subscription token for reading the new Opus comic or the new Bloom County comic that just got started up. And you know, every day I open my app and I see the new comics in my custom you know, magazine full of comic strips based on the tokens that I've decided to possess. And by possessing those tokens, I've bought the right to access that directly from the actual artist or the actual author who's doing it, 
So like you take it down the line and there are literally dozens and hundreds of examples of industries where they are closed right now and they are successful or sometimes they're not. Sometimes there is just no option. But by adding that in, you just get all these possibilities that aren't there without it. So how we do it, how we're doing it anyways, in our alpha ecosystem is with three different tools that make up kind of the really basic level of what you need to do this. The first tool is a wallet that's really easy to use. It's called Tokenly Pockets. We have another version of it that's called the LTB Companion that uses LTB coin as the kind of native token in it. But we wanted to do one that used Bitcoin as the native token. Because frankly, most people are going to be buying things and are going to be using tokens alongside Bitcoin as kind of the, you know, as the liquidity in and out of the system. It's the money, and these are effectively gift certificates. So the wallet designed by and created by Joe Looney from the LTB community has been really fantastic. Once you have the wallet, you can either use it to buy just stuff through our store system, or you can use it to buy tokens through our vending machine system. So Stephanie, do you remember how the old Satoshi dice used to work? Oh, gosh. Uh, I actually never played it. (laughs) So Satoshi Dice, at one point, they shut out U.S. customers. And they did that by banning U.S. IP addresses. Effectively, what happened when they banned U.S. IP addresses is it didn't matter because nobody actually needed to visit the Satoshi Dice webpage anyways. The way it was set up was there were a bunch of fixed Bitcoin addresses that didn't change. And one Bitcoin address would be one set of odds. And one Bitcoin address would be another set of odds. And based on how many, on how much Bitcoin you sent to each address, it would play the game on your behalf, and then it would pay you out according to whatever the rules were. And obviously, the higher the payout, the lower the chances of a payout happening were. So that is basically how each swap bot works. Each swap bot vending machine has its own native Bitcoin address. When people buy from a swap bot the first time, and for now, in these early days, they're going to the swap bot's webpage, the vending machine's webpage, and they tell it how much they want of whatever the thing it's buying. So if I was buying your book coin, I would say I want one of that. It tells you the price and how much to send it. And then using integration with the wallet, you can click to pay uh, without having to copy and paste. In the future, what that means, though, because it doesn't actually rely on the front end interface, because it's just like those old Satoshi Dice addresses, and it's really just about what tokens are you sending? Does it trigger logic? And if it triggers logic, what does that logic then send you back? Because of that, we're going to be able to put swap bots into all kinds of places that are off of our website. So eBay, for example, can't, you can't have eBay auctions that take place off of eBay's website because it's, it's an eBay thing. And that, of course, lives on their website. But when you do something, when you build a vending machine, as we've built our vending machines, that is not the case. All you need is the rules of how it's going to react so that you can get the right result from it. And again, that Bitcoin address. And then, of course, the way that you place an order isn't by sending, I am placing an order. It's by actually sending the Bitcoin transaction from a wallet that you control to the bot. And then the bot, when it has confirmed the payment, effectively sends back to that same address. So it's a very, very simple system that because it's so simple, offers all kinds of interesting opportunities for expansion. Like the wallet, for example, um, you'll be able to search for different vending machines directly in the wallet itself. Again, because it's just this information that can be put there. Then the other side of it, we have what we call token redemption. And token redemption is basically, if you wanted to buy something with a token, it used to be that you couldn't because they weren't integrated into checkout systems and they you know, weren't integrated into stores and things like that. And so that's what we've basically done is that we've built a token slot API that you can use to integrate into any website or any checkout system. And then we've also built a standalone version that uses the API in a very Shopify-like type of setting 
where you can easily create different items that you want to sell. And then you can accept dollars via credit card. You can accept Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies via Shapeshift if they're a Shapeshift token. Or you can accept counterparty tokens based on what you want at whatever rate you want. So yeah, so that's it. It's those three components. It's the wallet, it's the vending machines, and it's the redemption services. And with those, you can do most anything with this and you know and and they'll eventually be used to build those more complicated applications right because every person who wants to write a book listed on this future audible platform we're talking about necessarily has to figure out a way to sell that token so that's you know our solution to that problem This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by GetKeepKey.com, the makers of a safe and easy Bitcoin hardware wallet that'll be available later this year. Although not yet available, I've been trying out a production model for the last few weeks and have a couple of thoughts on it. In their explainer video, KeepKey imagines you'll store your hardware wallet in a safe or somewhere else physically protective. In practice, I've found this isn't how I use it. With its large screen and flat rectangular form factor, I've actually found it quite useful mounted on top of one of my monitors. When I want to make a purchase, I just connect it to my computer via mini USB, and it acts as a second secure screen letting me easily and securely verify everything from pin entry to my purchases and transfers. When I'm finished, I just unplug the cable and the keep key goes dark until next time. KeepKey is open source, and if you'd like to take a look or give it an audit, head over to github.com slash keepkey. And to learn more about KeepKey or to be notified when it's available, head over to getkeepkey.com. The magic word for episode 239 is token. That's T-O-K-E-N. Token. You've got until the 25th of August to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. How much of this infrastructure is dependent on Tokenly itself as a survivable entity and a centralized entity? Is this something that is available for others to run as an open source platform? Is it possible for someone to take over after Tokenly disappears, for example, or if Tokenly is asked to censor a specific token? Can you do that? So what are the centralization versus decentralization characteristics of what you've built? That's a great question. So we are a centralized server-based platform that is licensed under very permissive and commercially permissive open source terms. So the ways that we're not permissive is we use what's called the AGPL. GPL generally is an open source license that requires that anybody who creates something new and then offers that product commercially has to give that back to the community. So any innovations that are developed, built on top by a, you know, a company for one particular uh, integration or that they're going to do has to then be shared back so that the code can be learned from and can become part of the broadly available open source base. The A variant of that in AGPL is that most of what we've built are server-based software as a service, essentially tools. 
So Tokenly runs servers that run swap bots, that run token slot. And really, we do this through a very modular system. We have one component called XChain that is essentially the full notification service. It's paying attention to both the Bitcoin blockchain and the counterparty blockchain. And it lets everybody know. So essentially, a swap bot will register with the notification service. And then the swap bot will receive notifications that affect it. And we've gotten this down. Devin's done a really great job of making this about as responsive as it could possibly be. Most times, we detect transactions within one to two seconds of them hitting the network. So it's very, very fast. And that allows us to, even though we're using the Bitcoin blockchain, still be really responsive when we're talking to customers. So on the decentralization front, the way that we designed this and the reason why it's open source in the way that it is, is because we want other companies to emerge that operate this software too, and that sell the services as well. And we want there to be a competitive marketplace in offering vending machine services and offering redemption services and doing all of the other things that we are planning on doing. That makes it so that we can say no to operations that are risky or that we feel like aren't something that as a US-based, Delaware-based company, we can effectively take on as risk, but they can still exist. So the purpose with all of the projects that we're doing with Tokenly is to build the possibilities, is to build the infrastructure so that somebody who wants to do one of these things doesn't have to figure it all out from the ground up, but can just use what we've already created, whether the company is there or not, it's all going to stay around, at least in the current form. And the way that we're developing is entirely in public too. So what you see on the GitHub and what you see in the issues, that's actually where all development is happening. Meaning I could run my own swap bot. I could just basically fork the code, clone it, run it, compile it myself, run my own swap bot, either talking to your exchange notification engine or even fork and clone that and run it myself. Yes, that's entirely correct. And more importantly, if let's say I'm an author and I want to create a token that represents a discount for my book or that represents the ability to buy my book. And I want to sell that token. I create that token on Tokenly and I start using it and I start selling it through your swap bot. And then for whatever reason, you disappear. Can I then launch a swap bot that still trades my token that was previously created with you and just continue it? Actually, we don't even let people create tokens with us. We right now, we're going to be offering a registrar service because it's been requested. But effectively, right now, you can't do that. Effectively, right now, you have to make your token someplace else. So I'd make it on Counterparty. Exactly. So you would make it on Counterparty in your counter wallet, and then you would use that with the swap bot. So yes, you could do that. A quick distinction here. All of the services that we're offering are really intended for companies that are intending to offer these as services. So you, you certainly could run all of the infrastructure just to run one vending machine. But in reality, I think that it would be a lot more work than it, than it was worth. And that's actually why we've priced our services effectively the way we are. If you just want to you know, use a single swap bot, it costs $7 a month. We don't take any transaction fee. We don't charge by the transaction. It's flat. It's basic. It's easy. Yeah, that's uh, so essentially all of the ownership information and the assets themselves is simply recorded on the open blockchain. And as long as you can decode that information, understand the protocol, you can run all of this infrastructure independently. Yes, you can run all of it independently. We've already seen a couple of people fork just for development purposes, but we haven't yet really seen anybody running a commercial service yet, in large part because, you know, we're still in a first alpha and uh, and we just, you know, released the beginning of this month. How about Counterparty? How much does it depend on Counterparty being maintained and updated? Well, so it's kind of a funny thing. You know, Ethereum has been getting close to coming out. And so we've been talking about that because a lot of the stuff that we've created with like SwapBot, for example, is all kind of automation that happens to Bitcoin. 
But with Ethereum, in theory, it could happen within Ethereum, as in Ethereum could actually be doing most of the logic that we have to have run by servers themselves. And that actually is kind of the other broad plan is that whatever point something like MadeSafe gets online, then our solution effectively is decentralized, uh, even at the individual companies running at basis, because we would just run it on distributed computing that would be much more robust than the servers that we have now. Even if Counterparty, just to answer Stephanie's question more directly, even if Counterparty went out of business, the Counterparty wallet itself is open source and all of the protocols and formats that are used to record Counterparty assets on the blockchain are all open. So you can just simulate the same stuff on your own systems and continue to run counterparty wallets. It's not really dependent on the company at all. Well, and also the company runs nodes. So since the company runs nodes for counterparty, then to a certain extent, so long as we stay around, then counterparty is around. So it's kind of like Bitcoin. Like, yes, if Bitcoin goes away, then all of this stuff is vulnerable to Bitcoin not existing. But the chances of that happening are incredibly not existent. I think what's really fascinating with all of the things that you've described to us is that the basic idea of creating a token existed and has existed since the early versions of colored coins. And then after that counterparty and then open assets and open assets plus counterparty, all of that as an infrastructural component existed. But in terms of solutions focused applications that need to provide all of the surrounding infrastructure the associated infrastructure actually turn this into something usable that hasn't existed. And it sounds like what you've built from your experience with LTB coin is all of the stuff you need to put this into practical use for a business to sell, to buy, to register, to swap, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that really pushes forward this whole area of tokens quite substantially because you're no longer talking just about a protocol and a, a basic wallet. You're talking about solution-specific infrastructure. The generic infrastructure that's required to make any of this stuff happen, to a large degree, we've seen companies like BitPay that have done this for Bitcoin. I mean, nobody had done it yet for tokens. And we were, I mean, gosh, Let's Talk Bitcoin and the LTB coin project has been probably greater than 50% of the total volume that's gone on Counterparty. And Counterparty is the largest in terms of use out of all of the meta protocols that have been launched so far by a significant margin. So yeah, I mean, like that's really the thing is that I felt these problems really, really acutely when we launched LTB coin, and they've continued to be problems to this day. So it's this whole something is hard until it's not hard anymore. And then once it's not hard anymore, like once, you know, Bitcoin exists, then it's not that hard to build something like Counterparty because it uses Bitcoin as like all of the hard stuff layer and it builds its own hard stuff on top of it. But then at the point that that exists, well, then it's, you know, where before you had to, you know, launch a coin to build a token. Now you don't. Now that that became easy, now that it's easy to build a token. Well, now you can't use a token, but you can build it. And so the, the you can't use it becomes the hard part. And so that's really what I'm hoping that we're going to accomplish here is we're going to, to push this forward enough so that using the token, whether it be to give it value, you know, by using it as a merchant or by spending it and redeeming it just, you know, as a user with a checkout system, if those things become easy, then I think that the next step is something real good. And I think the next step is people actually using this because all of the parts that were really hard that were making it so it wasn't worth doing, well, suddenly they're not there. And in practice, that's what we've seen so far. The people who we've talked to, you know, and again, we're doing this in a conservative fashion as I like to do, but the early merchants who we've talked to have been very supportive of this and see the point and have not found it to be a difficult experience at all. That really speaks to the other aspect of all of this, which is that what you've built is something that, as we say in software engineering, scratches an itch, right? You, you are solving a problem first and foremost for your own use. 
out of the deep experience of having faced that problem for quite a while, you know, by starting with LTB coin when nobody else was thinking uh, along those lines and actively trying to use tokens within a production environment, within a real business, within a real content producer, revealed all of the problems that you went and then solved or attempting to solve with Tokenly. And really, that's the best way to build a business. That's the best way to focus and harness innovation. And it's the best way to develop software is not to try and tackle something abstract because you think other people will pay for it, but to tackle something concrete that you need. And if you need it, then somebody else probably needs it too. And you probably know a lot about what it will take to solve it. I think that's really a great way to approach this. So very interested in seeing how I could use these systems myself and what comes next. Well, actually, I am going to be interested in talking to you about third key solutions because we do need to figure out some way to further disintermediate risk from the platform. Uh, The platforms that I'm building, the attempt is to use Bitcoin for all of the things that Bitcoin is good for, which in large part is not having the responsibility of possession of user tokens. So there are some things that we have to possess in order to do the automation on behalf of the merchant. Like we have to keep inventory in a vending machine. So if you're selling audiobook tokens, then there have to be audiobook tokens actually in the bot's control so that it can then sell those. So all a bot is really is just contained logic that lives on and can exercise control over both sending and receiving of a Bitcoin address. So once you have that as a basic concept, then you can change the logic to be whatever it wants to be. So it could be crowdfunding, it could be arbitrage, it could be all kinds of things. It effectively is a user agent. That's a problem that we've worked on before, primarily because companies that are trying to do token-based crowd sales are interested in securing those tokens in multi-signature structures that allow the possibility of backup and recovery and decentralized control and ownership structure So you can do things like governance, you can ensure that not one person can run away with it or that if you lose one key, you're hosed. That becomes really important when you're dealing with a crowd sale where you you really don't know how much might come in and how much value is going to come in. And you're dealing with essentially two tokens at any point in time, Bitcoin plus this other token that might exist. So multi-sig for tokens is, I think, a very interesting next step for this. Once you have this concept of user agents, right, these bots are effectively user agents, then what you get to is that, well, if they could talk to each other, the bots, that is, then that could be really interesting. (laughs) So one of the things that we're working on and looking at real hard is essentially a communications layer. Probably we would use something probably like OpenBazaar, actually, as a communications layer to allow bots to announce themselves and then to listen to each other and then to respond and take action on behalf of, you know, the user indicated direction based on that information. So like a decentralized token market. Exactly. It's like a decentralized outcry token market. And from that, again, if you have bots announcing themselves every half hour where they just say out into the ether, I am active. Here are the swaps that I have available. Here is my available inventory. And then every time bot makes a sale, it announces that sale as well. Then you have a whole lot of information that everybody can listen to, regardless of if the bot is being hosted by Tokenly or being hosted by company number 37. You know, it it just doesn't matter. They can be completely compatible. And bots could like if your bot is trying to sell a book, for example, you could see, oh, I'm actually more expensive than everybody else. So let me lower my price to be more competitive. And somebody who's trying to buy a book can listen and hear who's the most competitive and buy from that bot because 
they recognize that that's the best opportunity in order to accomplish what they're attempting to accomplish. And, and I mean, of course, all of this is made more powerful because bots can, since they control Bitcoin addresses, trade with each other. So if I want to sell an hour consult token for LTB coin and storage and swarm and Bitcoin, but I only ever want to take Bitcoin, then I could have it so that all of those other tokens are sent to the best paying bot that is buying Swarm or StorageX or whatever and selling Bitcoin. And it can even be multiple hops. Like my bot could accept Swarm tokens in payment and then send them to a bot that is buying Swarm and selling XCP and then send it to another bot that is buying XCP at a better price than I would get equivalent uh, in Bitcoin than if I had just gone directly from Swarm. And then that gets sent back to the bot and then the bot forwards it on to the operator's address based on its income forwarding logic. You realize that you just described a completely decentralized, completely anonymous, completely uncensorable version of Ripple. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, I just wanted to repeat that for all of those who didn't just realize that what you described is exactly that. And if, like uh, myself, you believe that Ripple solves a very interesting problem, but it is a fatally compromised solution to that problem, if you can find a completely decentralized, uncensorable and anonymous solution to that same problem. That problem needs solving, and that problem is being able to to trade arbitrary tokens that represent assets of different types. I love the idea of combining tokens, multi-signature, and open bazaar as a bot trading network. I never thought of that. That's brilliant. The rabbit hole goes really, 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 really deep with this one. And that's kind of why I have thought about very little else besides different applications and use cases and ways that this can be really influential. And I continue to, as I talk to more people and discover more use cases that we have not thought about because they're not something that matters to me. So our first real meaningful customer using swap bots is this game called Spells of Genesis that I think that they are just today having their, they're doing a crowd sale where they're selling their in-game currency that uh, is called bit crystals so that's going on but for the last 3 weeks or so they've been renting swap bots from us i think they're up to 8 now and selling collectible cards that then will work in their game and these cards are tokens and then when you uh, you can go to api.munga.com and you can see all of the cards that they have and when you uh, are there with an address and, and you put in your address your bitcoin address and it has specific tokens then those cards are lit up and it shows that you actually possess them And then when the game comes out, then you'll be able to use those cards in game. And if you don't have the tokens, then you don't have them. And so it's it absolutely floored us with the demand that they got and the amount of money that they've been able to raise and just how interested in these cards people are. We have probably about 10 other customers who are paying for swap bots, but all of them put together are not a fraction of how many cards. I mean, it's probably closer to five or six hundred cards at this point in maybe two or three hundred orders that have been purchased so far through this system. That's the other thing about this is that like, I'm looking at this from a lot of different perspectives. There are redeemable tokens, which are tokens that you buy and then you hold until you want to use it and then you redeem it as payment instead of payment. And then there are these access tokens where just possessing the token actually is the thing where whether you're talking about, you know, the audible example or this Spells of Genesis card game example, holding the token gives you access within the given environment that, that it is powerful in. I think that's a, a little technical detail that probably is not well understood by most people. And this applies to Bitcoin too, which is that you can do two things with a Bitcoin address or really the private keys behind a Bitcoin address. One thing you can do is you can initiate transactions, which is a redeemable part of this, right? 
But the other thing you can do is you can sign messages proving ownership without actually spending anything, right? So that you can sign a message with your Bitcoin private keys or Trezor wallet, your Bitcoin core wallet or whatever. Most wallets have the ability to sign or verify messages. And what you're doing there is you're proving ownership and control over something without actually spending or redeeming that. You're just showing that you hold. And that proof can be verified by, by anyone just by checking the signature. So in this case, you're talking about having a token and you're not spending that token to get something in return. You're simply proving that you own that token while keeping it. I think that's a really important concept that's not easy to understand at first glance. It effectively replaces passwords is what it does. And it does it in a better way because it makes it so it's all granular and makes it so it's not all tied to the platform, just like in all of the other examples we gave. So for the last like year or so, if you wanted to, you could start what we call a token society on letstalkbitcoin.com where you would be able to pick a name for a special forum that would be created in our forum area and where the only people who would see it are people who possess in their verified account, as Andreas just said, the correct token that corresponds to access to that room. So it was funny because one of the cards in the Spells of Genesis sale is called Satoshi Card, and it is very limited in supply. There are going to be a thousand of most of these cards, but there's only going to be 200 of the Satoshi, and they're only releasing them two at a time. So they're very, very in demand, and most people who want them don't have them. So somebody created a token-controlled access forum for people who have that Satoshi card. And I was invited to it, but I don't have the card because I haven't been able to get one yet. And so I can't access it, even though I own the website. And like, I mean, I could get into the database and try to access it through that. But the way that the system is built, it really is about, do you have the token? If you don't, then you can't. And like, I don't, I didn't even know that they had created it until I was actually invited to it and saw that I didn't have access. Oh, that's a funny example. Yeah. It's this interesting kind of intersection of tokens as assets, tokens for authentication, token-based authentication, tokens as reputation systems, tokens as identifiers, and tokens that are tradable in themselves without an underlying value, which is kind of what they're doing with these game cards. It's all very interesting, different variations of how you can take the same basic concept and use it in many different ways. And really, I think some of the most interesting applications for this are, are things that we can't even begin to imagine right now. Totally. <laughs> That's completely my perspective on this at this point, is that we're totally scratching the surface and literally every couple of days, I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then I have to go and write it down. Things are happening so fast. But yeah, I mean, that's the cool part for me is that we are now at a point where for a very long time up to this point, it's been really difficult to do any of this stuff. And so when I talk to people about it, I have to talk about it in very abstract ways because there just weren't any examples. But now these early customers that we have coming online actually using these tools are really, really helpful in explaining this. So like another one that I can tell you about that's hopefully going to be out next week, we just finished the uh, integration is EasyDNS.com, who was one of our original sponsors uh, on the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. I, uh, I went and talked to their CEO, Mark, about three months ago and told him that I wanted to do this and effectively have them offer a token that is redeemable for a .com or .net registration or renewal for a year, plus their uh, DNS hosting services and email forwarding and all that jazz. Normally, they charge $15 a year for that level of service. So I told him that they should do a bulk discount program, basically. So it's like a 30% or so discount. What that means, though, is that if you are a bulk user, now you have a good way to buy in bulk, whether or not you are redeeming them at once. Because normally when you're buying domains, 
you have the option pretty much of buying domains that you want or not buying domains. There's not really a concept of buying like a generic domain that can be redeemed for something in the future, whereas effectively that's what the tokens are. Theoretically here, doesn't that mean that, first of all, you could resell these tokens anytime you want and you could create secondary markets? And even to a certain extent, another DNS provider could start accepting these tokens knowing that they can resell them on the market at any point in time. That is very true. And that is something that, frankly, I don't see and most of the people who I've talked to don't see as a negative. Um, That's a positive. That's expanding your market. And the relevant part about it, of course, is that if the competitor was selling these DNS tokens, they would be effectively giving customers to this other you know, merchant. And does that also get rid of the need for who is? Because like you can prove you own a domain. No, it doesn't get rid of the need for who is yet. To do that, you would have to have a system where you have specific tokens, the possession of a specific like this token, A97333456, you know, like take that out a couple more digits. That represents the ownership of let's talk Bitcoin.com. If you had a system that recognized the possession of token ownership as the same thing then that could work. But you would need to build that system. So actually, we're going to see an earlier version of this in Let's Talk Bitcoin first, as we do with most of these things. Effectively, you're going to be able to own a blog in this same way by owning a token. And it'll start off where you'll have a blog token, right? Or you'll just pay with Bitcoin or or LTB coin or something else. And you will create a blog. And then at the point that you want to take possession of it, right, take possession of it in token form, then you'll be able to convert it into this numbered token that if you then sell it to somebody else, will give them ownership of that exact blog in the way that you have ownership. But if you don't want to sell it, then you can just convert it back into a blog token and sell the blog token to somebody else, and then they can use it to create a new blog. I would love to see what you could do combining payment channels with your redemption engine. So instead of redeeming a token once for a fixed amount, you could effectively have a token rate per second for a service, a streaming service, a Wi-Fi service, a video streaming, you know, kind of like Streamium, only not just for Bitcoin, but for any token, basically a micropayments channel solution for tokens. You could really open the market quite significantly to other applications if you could change the way things can be redeemed. So Streamium, if you go to their webpage, has a couple of things that you can, if you want to start a broadcast, there are basically a couple of fields there. You put in the name of the broadcast, you put in a Bitcoin address you want to receive payment to. I think there's one other thing, but I can't recall what it is. The fourth thing that you could add that would make tokens really relevant here would be an access token. Because Streamium has a concept of you show up at the time that something is live and you can watch it when it's live. And you can pay per second for what or whatever the interval is for whatever you're consuming. But there's no way that somebody who wants to pre-sell tickets to their streaming event, they can't do that because there's no concept of that. And somebody who wants to like sell a season pass where somebody buys a season pass and then they get access to all of the different streams that a person does over a set period of time. Like there's no concept of that. So you could add tokens in there very simply. And again, it's either token controlled access or redemption where you know you spend it at the address or alternatively you just possess it and it's looking at your address it says it sees oh you have the season pass and there you go the reason why you couldn't do the exact thing that you were saying with payment channels is actually not about tokens it's about the specific type of tokens that we have integrated right now which are counterparty tokens a colored coins type system uses actual little tiny uh, outputs of bitcoin whereas counterparty is an account based system so, I mean, the way to think about it is that colored coins basically uses 
little dollar bills, right? A dollar bill is a dollar bill. So you send a dollar bill to somebody, they have that particular dollar bill. There's no question about that. Whereas counterparty is more like you write a check to somebody. And then when it gets put into the blockchain, they cash that check and it pulls whatever funds out of your account and puts them against their account. Users don't actually see this, but what it means is that you can't lock up specific amounts or specific chunks of counterparty tokens. All you can do is have a check. And so if somebody cleans out the account before the check is cashed, you have the same problem. So you can't use it with payment channels, but there are other protocols out there, CoinSpark and a variety of others, where you absolutely can do that. And the intention with Tokenly is not to be a counterparty protocol. It's to be a solutions protocol and a solutions platform. So we are intending to and anticipating integrating that as well as uh, others that offer significant advantages. Oh, the future is so bright. I'm going to buy a token for sunglasses. <laughs> Which is a paraphrasing of the future so bright I got to wear shades. That's a, that was a really great description of what you're building, Adam. I think I, I, I'm really now getting the full breadth of it for the first time. I'm very glad to hear that. This has been very difficult for me to talk about, largely because it is so abstract and because it is such a big project. You know, we're trying to do a lot of things and we're trying to do it in a way that doesn't, you know, kill us <laughs> because it's still a part time project for everybody. But yeah, the future is very bright. And it was a long time ago that I really came to the conclusion that it was giving people good reasons why they want to use this stuff, not just that it is better, because that's always been true and it just hasn't been enough for most people. The reasons are going to be stupid reasons. They're going to be because some dumb game is using it that, you know, that you really like. And that's the thing that sucked you in because otherwise you wouldn't have cared. And that's kind of what I see happening here. So I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to get less abstract over time. I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk with me about it. No, it's cool. I wanted to talk about it. I think it's interesting. I totally agree with your vision, Adam. You know, it's, it's the, the silly reason. What could completely flip this whole ecosystem and put it into overdrive? What could really throw us into the elbow of the curve and shoot us into exponential growth, which can happen in technology at any point in time? But I think it's, it could be something extremely silly, like a Mandarin language uh, video game massively online role-playing game that starts using a token that you can only play with Bitcoin and it's very successful and people really want to play it. And it gives them a reason that they can't do it with anything but buying Bitcoin, buying a token, joining the game. Something like that could suddenly transform this ecosystem. I, I think you know the, the interesting thing about Bitcoin and the tokens and applications it enables is that the space is so broad, the possibilities are so broad, that you can have multiple events like that unfold simultaneously from all kinds of different parts of the world. Killer applications, it could be remittances to M-Pesa in Kenya, it could be a video game in China, it could be a safe haven in a hyperinflation crisis in Venezuela, or all of the above. Yeah, I think that with Bitcoin, it is all of the above. And the question really is just what comes first? Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie, Andreas, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>